You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hey everybody, David Guzik here. So glad you could join me on a Thursday afternoon for those of you who can join me live. Uh, if you can't join me live, of course, you're welcome to come and join at another time. Listen to this on tape or podcast or whatever means you get it. Uh, today, right now, I'm broadcasting on a Thursday afternoon, May 7th, uh, year 2020, of course. And uh, I want to begin right now, before we get to our lead question, I want to begin just with the recognition that in the United States, by many people, this has been called as a national day of prayer. And so I wanted to begin our live stream here with just a, a brief prayer. Now, I, I know, and one of the things I love about our time together here on Thursdays and during the coronavirus sort of event season, whatever you want to call it, uh, we've also been meeting together on Mondays. I don't know how much longer the Monday thing will last, uh, but we've been getting together. And one of the things I enjoy about that is we have really an international audience. We've got people from South America, from Mexico, from Australia, from South Africa, from Europe, many different countries in Europe and such. And I really enjoy the international flavor. But in the United States, where I live, it has been recognized today as a day of prayer. And especially, there's a lot of needs in the United States, but all over the world. In light of the coronavirus, there's the needs for the people uh, who are sick, uh, the families of those who have died, uh, the great medical challenge that's in front of us and the first responders, the doctors and nurses and all the supplemental personnel around them. Uh, there's also a great economic strain as well, and that's going to be felt for some time to come. So I just want to begin with a very brief prayer, and then I'll get into our lead question. Uh, Father in heaven, we come before you. And on this day, which in the United States has been recognized as a national day of prayer, we ask, God, that you'd have mercy upon this country. We pray that you'd have mercy so that Christians would truly be, walk and live in repentance before you, that they would have humble hearts and servant hearts towards their community. We pray that you would give pastors and church leaders tremendous wisdom to know how to meet these challenges, especially, Lord, looming in front of us the great challenge of when the church should reopen for business, either in a uh, partial sense or in a full sense. But Lord God, uh, we also pray for those involved in the medical fields, those doing research on behalf of this disease, this pandemic around the world. Uh, we think especially, Lord, of the United States because it has been declared a national day of prayer. But Lord, we know that so many are fighting the same battle in other countries. And so we want to ask for your blessing upon them as well. Lord, we pray that you would show your light, your glory, your goodness in the midst of this very difficult time, that you give wisdom to political leaders, to uh, medical leaders, research leaders, uh, economic leaders, all these things, Lord, show your grace and your goodness. We look to you, God, and commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, Having begun with that, let me get to our lead question today. And our lead question comes to us from Malcolm. Malcolm asks this question, what about purgatory? Uh, this is his specific question. What is the meaning of purgatory and the phrase, Jesus went into hell in some of our prayers? 
would you equate purgatory to that part of Hades where the good wait for eternal life? Okay, Malcolm, glad I could answer this question for you. And let me begin by saying that the idea of purgatory, which at least in early forms started with some early Christians, such as Clement of Alexandria, who was born about 150 AD, and Origen, who was born about 184 AD, uh, those early Christians taught that those who died without time to perform works of penance would be purified through fire in the next life. So this is a teaching that uh, was fairly early in the church, or at least the idea was out there. But as the idea developed in the Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Ages, the idea of purgatory was connected with the sacramental system. You see, you have to take a little step back and consider that the idea in the Roman Catholic Church was that salvation, that is entrance to heaven, was received through the sacraments that the church distributed. These sacraments, things such as baptism, holy communion, confirmation, penance, holy matrimony, last rites, these things guaranteed someone salvation. Yet, everyone knew, I mean, they could see it with their own eyes, that there were more than a few people who checked all the right boxes when it came to receiving the sacraments, but they lived terrible lives. So how could God let them into heaven? Again, they checked the right boxes, but their lives looked awful. And this is what they thought. They thought God can let them into heaven by cleaning them up first through the fires of purgatory. And Malcolm, in a basic way, that's what you ask. What is purgatory? Purgatory is thought to be, and again, I want to explain that very plainly, it's thought to be a place where people who are destined for heaven go to before they get to heaven, and they are purified through fire-like sufferings until they're pure enough for heaven. Uh, in English, we have the word to purge, that is, you know, to put out something, usually has a connotation to put out something bad. Purgatory and purge come from the same Latin root. The idea is to purge out the bad things, to burn it away through fire-like suffering in purgatory. Now, in this thinking of the Roman Catholic Church, the worse you were in your earthly life, the more time you have to spend in purgatory. And in the thinking of Roman Catholics, the Pope has authority over purgatory. So the Pope has the authority to let anyone out of purgatory and send them off to heaven if he prayed for their soul to be delivered from purgatory. Now, let me make this clear. I've described all this to you. I need to be very clear about this. This is not what the Bible teaches at all. Purgatory is the invention of man. There is no purgatory. And even though there was some early Christians who believed in it, such as Clement of Alexandria and Origen, yes, we understand there were some early Christians who believed in it. It's not in the Bible. The Bible says that if a person is saved, if they are in Jesus Christ, then when they die, they go to heaven. There's no intermediary place where they are cleaned up before they go to heaven. Rather, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is fully sufficient to 
cleanse a person and they don't need to be cleansed again in purgatory. Look at some passages that kind of reinforce this idea. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, it says this, We are confident, yes, well-pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. You see, the truth that to be absent from the body means that believers will be present with the Lord. Now, this proves two false doctrines to be false. It refutes the false doctrine of soul sleep, the idea that the believing dead are held in some kind of suspended animation until the resurrection occurs. The Bible doesn't know anything about soul sleep. And then also the false doctrine of purgatory, which says that the believing dead must be cleaned up through their own suffering uh, before coming into the presence of God. You see, Paul makes it very plain. He says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He doesn't say to be absent from the body is to go to purgatory for the next thousand years and then to be cleaned up before you can make it into heaven. No, Paul's idea is very plain there in Corinthians. Now, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says this, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul did not say, for me to live as Christ and to die is to go to purgatory for a few years or many years. No, that idea, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain, is inconsistent with the idea of purgatory. Matter of fact, here's another verse that's very inconsistent with the idea of purgatory. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now notice that. Where is the time for godly living? It's in the present age. This is a subtle proof against the idea of purgatory or any kind of place of cleansing in the life to come. Nothing's going to be purified in the world to come that is not cleansed already in this life. Now, you might say, well, David, I mean, how do people get it so wrong? Why do people believe in purgatory? Well, I'll give you the one Bible verse that some people rely on for this. Now, it's said, and I haven't done a careful study of this, that there are mentions of the idea of purgatory in some of the Apocrypha and some of the books that don't belong in our Old Testament or New Testament. But the one verse that some people use to support the idea of purgatory is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it's verse 13. This is the verse. Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Now again, remember what I told you about the idea of purgatory in the Roman Catholic mind. The idea of purgatory there is simply that uh, it's this place where you go after your life on earth, but before you go to heaven, and you are purged by fires of judgment. But notice this. When Paul mentions this idea of being purged or tested by fire in the world beyond, in 1 Corinthians 3.13, he's not talking about the fire purifying the worker. Rather, it tests their workmanship. 
So the idea that when we die, we go to a place where we're purified by fire before we go to heaven, th that idea isn't here. The, the idea of purgatory has nothing to do with 1 Corinthians 3.13, because this passage talks about judging the work, not the worker. Purgatory is, again, strictly a human invention, and it denies the finished work of Jesus for the believer. And even though, at least in small ways, it came into the church early, it doesn't mean that it's true. We respect, we have a lot to learn from what the earliest Christians wrote and thought. But listen, we, in the end, we base our beliefs on the Bible, not on what early Christians thought and thought. It's helpful for us. We respect it. We look at it, but it's not ultimately determinative. Now, in Malcolm's question, he also asked about the phrase, Jesus went into hell. And what he's actually remembering is the line from the Apostles' Creed. Let, let, let me read this portion of the Apostles' Creed to you. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. What Malcolm seems to be remembering there is that line from the Apostles' Creed, which simply says that Jesus descended to hell. And that line in the Apostles' Creed likely refers to passages like Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9, that say this of Jesus. He also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Now, some people think that the phrase, the lower parts of the earth, refers to Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison. That's described in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, and chapter 4, verse 6. Now, while this aspect of Jesus' ministry in Hades, following his work on the cross, is true, and it's prophesied in Isaiah chapter 61 and in Luke chapter 4. Paul did not necessarily refer to it. Some people think that that idea in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 9, descended into lower parts of earth, simply refers to the burial of Jesus. Well, we could discuss that all day long. But that line, he descended to hell, isn't from the scriptures. It's from the Apostles' Creed. And I think it's a true line if you work around with it. First of all, understand that it means Hades, not hell, not Gehenna, the lake of fire. And it also refers to the idea that it could just simply be referred to his burial. But Jesus did have a work in Hades that he did uh, after his death and presumably before he was revealed to be raised from the dead. So, Malcolm, I hope that's helpful for you. Happy I could deal with your question. Let me take a look now at some of the questions that are in our chat window, and I'll deal with them the best that I can. Uh, here we go. Darren says, um, reopen church buildings regardless on May 31st, Pentecost, rightful disobedience or a loving, unloving bad witness. Okay, Darren, uh, there's been some talk in Christian circles about saying that we should reopen on May 31st, the day of Pentecost. Well, let me just say this. I just think it's a lot more complicated than that. Let me explain. Listen, some places in the United States, and, and I'm going to speak about the United States, it's a big country, and the conditions in the United States are very different from place to place. But you can kind of transfer by analogy to different parts of the world 
where the coronavirus pandemic is worse and other places where it's not so bad. Okay, so here's the simple idea. Is that I know some pastors in the United States who have already reopened their churches for Sunday service. Now, they're doing it in a limited way. Uh, they've taken away most of their seating. They're observing uh, social distancing. They're not having children's ministry, not yet. You know, these kind of things. So when we say reopen church buildings regardless, well, what do we mean? Do we mean 100% full bore every aspect of ministry that we were doing before the coronavirus? Well, I, if that's what somebody means, they need to specify. Do they mean a limited opening? And in, in another three weeks or so to do it? Well, then that's another thing. I'm just saying this, is that different conditions in different places merit different responses. And I think it's up to pastors. It's up to church leaders, whether the church leaders are elders or a board of deacons or whatever it is. But it's up to those who have leadership responsibility in church to prayerfully and wisely consider this. I've got a video a few weeks back. You can look for it on the playlist of our question and answers talking about when churches should reopen. And so I deal with the question a little bit more on that uh, place. And I recommend that people take a look at that video. But let me just say this, is that there's no one answer to that. Number one, because communities are different. Some communities are much harder hit than others. In some communities, the danger is greater. In other communities, it's much lesser. And I would say this, congregations differ because there may be some congregations where a large percentage of the congregation is saying, hey, let's get back to regular services just as before. There's other congregations where the people may have a real wait and see attitude. But let me just remind you of something. Pastor, elders, you may open up your church for business again, but how do you know if people are going to show up? No, I'm not saying that that should be the great determining. You need to listen to the Lord and you take wise counsel from your public health officials and the whole thing around. Yes, take all of that into prayerful consideration. But it's possible. And again, I'm just saying it's possible that maybe the church leadership is much more anxious to get things going again with regular services than the congregation is. And maybe they have a little more of a wait and see attitude. Listen, I can't tell you what to do in your specific situation, but I can tell you work wisely, um, work carefully, and be bold. And again, go back to that video. I did it a few weeks ago, maybe two or three weeks ago, about when churches should reopen. Thank you for that, Darren. Uh, Rachel says, uh, what are some good resources to study church history? Well, Rachel, um, let me give you some great resources. First of all, Go to wherever it is you get podcasts, iTunes, uh, Google Play, wherever it is, and look for the podcast done by my good friend, Pastor Lance Ralston of Calvary Chapel, Oxnard in California. Pastor Lance Ralston, you spell that name R-A-L-S-T-O-N, look for his podcast on church history called Communo Sanctorum. It is an outstanding podcast on the history of the church, very popular, very widespread, and uh, for good reason. 
There's also some resources for church history, like a series of lectures that I have on this YouTube channel that you're watching that's now on, uh, available in podcast form the same way. I have a series of about 20 or 21 lectures through church history that might be helpful. As far as books, there's two books that I kind of immediately recommend, even though there's many great books on church history. But let me just give you two to think about. Number one is a Church History in Plain Language by a guy named Bruce Shelley. Uh, he writes a great book on church history. A and then a longer work would be A History of Christianity by Kenneth Scott Latourette. Uh, these books are right back behind me on my shelf right there, where you have the little uh, Playmobil figure of Martin Luther standing above it. He's perched right upon volume two of A History of Christianity by Kenneth Scott Latourette. That's longer, but man, that is a great, great uh, resource to learn about the history of Christianity. So Rachel, I would recommend those things. Podcasts, you got some videos on my own YouTube channel. And then of course, um, you have these books that I would recommend to you. Uh, Ian says, can you please explain the Greek from Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40, when Jesus answers the question of the greatest command, is it a command or a statement? As in a child of God, you will, I hope. Okay, Ian, I got to say, I can't answer that from the Greek because first of all, um, I only have a very, very elementary knowledge of New Testament Greek. It doesn't go very far beyond knowing the alphabet and knowing how some of the language works. So I can't pick up a Greek New Testament and understand it without making reference to the many study aids that are right in front of us. But when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, and let me just turn there myself, Matthew chapter 22, here we look at verses 34 through 30. The idea about being the greatest commandment of all. Uh, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, being a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Ian, you seem to be asking, is that a command or a statement? In other words, is Jesus saying that believers must do this or that believers will do this? Well, since the phrasing and the idea from the Old Testament is that it is a command, that would be certainly the side I would be weighted upon, that Jesus meant these as commands for us as believers, that these are things we should do that we should endeavor to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, and we should endeavor to love our neighbor as ourselves. These are things that God expects of us. Um, I think we should regard them as commands unless there is strong, compelling evidence to regard them otherwise. I haven't seen such evidence. Uh, if somebody else has, uh, they can be referenced to it. But again, I, I would take them in its most natural sense, again, carrying over from the Old Testament context that these are commands. I can't give you an answer to that from the Greek, uh, but just from the context and again, connection back to the Old Testament, that would be the answer I would give you. Okay, uh, Debbie asked this question. 
Good afternoon, Pastor. I'm watching from Nigeria, Africa. You've been a blessing. God bless you. Please, can you talk about head covering in public worship? Thank you very much. Okay, Debbie, let me express this to you. Um, Paul talks about the need for women to wear a head covering in 1 Corinthians. And what he's talking about is that when the Corinthians would come together for congregational worship, as a demonstration of the fact that they respected God's order of authority in the church, they were to wear a head covering. Now, it's very important to understand this. In that ancient culture, as is true in some places in the world today, but more especially in history, that's what a head covering meant. A head covering meant, I am under authority. That was the message by the culture. I'll give you an example. Um, right now, I'm wearing a ring on my ring finger. And this isn't just a ring that I wear. It means something. Uh, in American culture, I understand that in other cultures, they wear it on the right hand and on the left. But to wear a ring on the ring finger of the left hand indicates in our Western culture that I'm married. And I am wonderfully married to my wife, Ingalil, for almost 40 years now. So this idea that I'm married, that's what this community, it's more than a ring. It has a very real and powerful, significant cultural connotation. Now, the same was true of a head covering in Corinthian culture. So here's what I would say. Since in most modern cultures, I'm not going to speak for every culture in the world, but in most modern cultures, the head covering does not have that connotation of being under authority. I don't think it's necessary for women to wear it. Now, if a woman wants to wear a head covering, God bless you, you have the absolute freedom, you have the absolute liberty in Jesus Christ to wear one. Go right ahead. The Bible certainly doesn't forbid it. But what is important in 1 Corinthians is the principle. And what's the principle? The principle is respecting God's order of authority in the church. It's possible for a woman to wear a head covering and then try to run things in the church, step outside of the appointed authority that God gave her in the church. And that would be disobeying those passages in 1 Corinthians, even though she's wearing something on her head. So there are places in the Bible where because culture changes, we keep the principle because the principle lasts. The way the principle may be expressed may differ from culture to culture. Now, again, I, every time I talk about this, I get people saying, oh, so you think we can throw out parts of the Bible because of culture? No, we don't throw out the principles of the Bible because of culture. We do not. But the way principles are expressed may differ from culture to culture. I'll give you another example. One culture may have an idea of modesty. And let's just say, I'm, I'll just make this up. That modesty says a woman should never show any part of her legs whatsoever. In another culture, a woman could wear something that shows parts of her legs, and it's not a problem. Well, which is true? Now, the biblical principle that women should dress modestly is absolutely true, and that needs to be obeyed. 
But what is modest and what is considered modest may have some differences from culture to culture. And so, again, that's just the simple example. I'm not trying to say that everything in the Bible is culturally. No, not at all. The principles of the Bible are everlasting. However, how the principles are expressed may differ from culture to culture. So, Debbie, I hope that helps you. I'm so happy to know that we've got some viewers from Nigeria. God bless you. Um, it's exciting to think about what God's doing all over the world. Okay, Luis says, what happens to a person who never heard the gospel, has good morals, but never accepted Jesus because he or she never heard of him? Does that person go to hell? All right, Luis, let me say, uh, that's really a question that I'd like to do a fuller answer on, but let me give you a very compact answer to that question. What about those who have never heard? And basically, um, Christians have come up with different answers to that question. And the main answers I want to deal with are twofold right here. W one of them says, uh, never heard of Jesus, never accepted Jesus, you're just going to hell, that's all there is to it. It doesn't matter if you never had the opportunity to hear of Jesus, to hear of the God of the Bible, to hear of anything like that. If you never heard, you never accepted Jesus, you're going to hell. Okay, there's there's Christians that believe that. There's other Christians who look especially at what it says in Romans chapter 1. And Romans chapter 1 tells us that God has revealed himself to all of humanity in creation and in conscience. And the idea is drawn from that clear statement in Romans chapter 1 that God will therefore judge those who have not heard on how they have responded to the revelation that God has given in both creation and conscience. I got to say, I lean towards that camp. Uh, it would just seem to me to be not righteous. And I believe that God is a righteous judge, don't you? I mean, and certainly we do. It would not be righteous for God to judge somebody on rejecting Jesus or the God of the Bible when they've never heard the gospel or anything about Jesus or the God of the Bible. But God can rightfully judge all of humanity by what they have done with the revelation God has given them. In some way, God has revealed himself to all of humanity in both creation and in conscience. Now, who will be saved from that? How many will be saved? Those are questions that people can debate about. But I would say that nobody will go to hell because they rejected Jesus Christ. If they never heard of him, they will be judged on the basis of what they did or did not do with what God did reveal to them in creation and conscience. I hope that helps you, Louise, and that's a good question. Carol says, when we say that we are proud of someone and their accomplishments, such as a child, um, grades, it's just, are we sinning? Okay, Carol, let me say, uh, you're, you're saying, when we say that we're proud of someone and their accomplishments, are we sinning? Carol, there are different ways that that word pride or to be proud is used. Um, there is a way that it's used in our culture of a natural and appropriate pleasure 
that someone may take in someone's accomplishments. Um, if an architect builds a great building and he's proud of his accomplishment, that's not necessarily bad. There is a natural and appropriate satisfaction that we take in our own accomplishments and often in the accomplishments of others, especially those that we love, like our children. So no, there is an aspect of that which not is not sin, um, not sin at all. There is a excessive self-focus or self-glorying in those things that would be the true sin of pride. We go back to the architect who builds a great building. It's possible for him to have a righteous, natural satisfaction and enjoyment in the work that he's done. But it's also possible for him to take an arrogant pride about it. So we use the same word in those different senses. I don't think that of that normally as being a sin of pride. Okay. Um, patiently says purgatory is an invention from hell. Well, it's certainly an invention of man. It is not in the scriptures at all. Uh, Dennis says, good afternoon, Pastor Guzik. My question is, if a child is born without full mental abilities and is not able to talk or walk and dies without being able to repent and confess Jesus is Lord, do they go to heaven? Dennis, what you're bringing up here is something, you know, I keep saying that these are things that I have to deal with later, and I really need to deal with this question later in greater depth. But what you're talking about is the concept of accountability. Now, sometimes we talk about the age of accountability, and I'm always a little surprised at how there are Christians who mock that idea. Now, it's true, we, we need to be very clear about this, the Bible gives no certain age of accountability. It doesn't say, well, at 10, year old, 10 years old, you're accountable. At 13 years old, you're accountable. At 18 years old, it doesn't give any age. But the concept of accountability, that there is a period of time in a person's life before they are fully culpable before God's law, that is very clear in the scriptures. Extremely so. So the concept of accountability uh, is important in the scriptures. And I would say that there are people, uh, because perhaps of a diminished mental capacity, because of other things, they have a diminished accountability before God, and the judge of all the earth will do rightly in that. Can I say with great certainty, well, they'll all go to heaven? Look, I, I don't know that, but but I would say that their accountability is not the same at all as someone who has full you know, recognition and full ability to understand these things, full mental capabilities. So um, the idea of diminished accountability because of age, because of some kind of uh, diminishment of mental ability, uh, because of physical ability on the... That idea of diminished accountability is a very true and biblical principle. So, um, yeah, it may be that the Bible, look, let's be honest, the Bible doesn't give us as much information on this as perhaps we wish it did. But what it does give us, I think, is enough for us to know some of these things, or at least to, to go forward on them. Kimberly says, I was wondering when you're going to get to the fact that it's not biblical, talking about purgatory. 
uh, no doubt. Uh, Kimberly says nothing substitutes for the blood of Jesus. Yes. You know, Kimberly, you're bringing up something about purgatory that I talked about before that I, I think is very important to bring up. The fundamental problem with purgatory is that it says the blood of Jesus didn't pay at all. It says that I need to pay for my sins in purgatory in the world beyond. And that's just a denial of the truth that the penalty of my sin was completely paid for at the cross. Jesus paid it all at the cross, and we can rest in that. Um, Broken People says, Hi, Pastor. Is it wrong to pray to become a martyr? All right. Um, broken People, let me just give you a very straightforward answer to that question. Yes, it's wrong to pray to become a martyr. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. The way you ask the question leads me to believe that it's praying to die for the Christian faith. Um, we don't need to pray for that. I would say it's wrong to pray for that. Now, if we were in the situation where we had to lay down our life in faithfulness to Jesus Christ for the advancement of his kingdom, then we should do it. And we should pray for grace in that moment to actually do it. But honestly, um, there are relatively few people in the world today who are faced with that. Now, let me say this. My heart breaks for what I read recently in the news in Africa, where Christians are being slaughtered. Uh, this happens in other countries in the world as well. It's terrible. And God will avenge the blood of those who have slain Christians, murdered them in cold blood simply because they are Christians. God will avenge their blood in this life or the next. I don't know how people think they can get away with this. Okay, but back to this simple idea. We don't need to pray that we would be martyrs in the sense of dying for our faith. We may or may not ever be called upon to die as martyrs, but here's the thing, broken people, we can live as martyrs. Remember that the fundamental idea behind the ancient Greek word that we translate martyr, the fundamental idea is that of a witness. That's really what it means, a witness. Now, there was a period in the church where to be a faithful witness meant that you would die for your faith. So the two concepts became aligned. But we can all live for Jesus Christ, even if we're never called upon to die for Jesus Christ. So broken people, don't focus on the idea of dying for Jesus. Focus on the idea of living for Jesus. And if living for Jesus would one day mean we have to lay down our life for him, well, then God helping us, we will do that. But we may not be called upon to die the death of a martyr, but God helping us, we can live the life of a martyr. Hope that helps you there. All right, let me go on here. Um, Ian Bonson, yes, Pastor Ralston's podcast is fantastic. Yes, it is, Ian. Uh, Jose says, can I apply stories like the Ark of Noah or the story of Lot to sustain pre-tribular rapture in the sense that God delivered the just in his faith from his holy wrath? Or is that out of context? Okay, Jose, 
I believe that the story of the Ark of Noah and the deliverance of Lot from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah before destruction do illustrate the principle of the pre-tribulation rapture. Because what happened in both of those occasions is God delivered his people and then judgment came. And it's interesting that when Jesus speaks in the Olivet Discourse, those are two things that he refers to from Old Testament history when he's talking about the judgment to come. These places where uh, God's people are delivered and then the judgment comes. Now, I would want to be very careful with this. I would not say that those stories, even though they are used by Jesus directly to illustrate aspects of his return, I would not say that those stories prove a pre-tribulational rapture, but I would say that they illustrate a pre-tribulational rapture. And so I think they are valid as illustrations of that biblical truth. Hope that helps you there, Jose. Um, Levy says, David, do you think there will be entertainment in heaven like sports and games? Well, um, let me say this. I'm sure missing baseball. Uh, so I'm. your question makes me reflect on the idea that maybe there will be baseball in heaven. Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't think so, Levy, but I think heaven will be much more active and involved than we think. We tend to think very passively of heaven, that it's just a place where we lounge around. I don't think that's the biblical idea. I think the biblical idea of heaven is that it's a place of activity and engagement. Now, exactly what that activity is, I don't know. I do know that we will serve the Lord in heaven. It says in Revelation, and his servants shall serve him. We'll be serving him in heaven. But how exactly? I don't know. All right. I'm just going to take a few more questions here. Um, Jane asks, Pastor David, will you please comment on theologians' age of the earth versus science? Well, Jane, let me just say that I believe that there's uh, some real discrepancy between some theologians and what most scientists say about the age of the earth. Um, there are some theologians who just say, hey, whatever scientists say, that's how old the earth is. Boom, that's what it is. There are some theologians who say, well, we can biblically kind of build a case for an old earth. And I've seen those kind of constructs. Um, there are other theologians who say, Bible students, if you want to say, no, the earth is significantly younger than um, the scientists say. Let me just give you some general principles in my mind about that whole issue. Uh, first of all, I would say this that Christians should not be anti-science. Look, I praise God for science. We live in a modern world that has been so blessed by modern science. It's, it's, it's an unbelievable gift of God to humanity what so much of modern science and engineering has given us. However, the great questions of life cannot be answered only by science. When we're talking about these questions of the origin of life, the creation of the world, how man was created, when we're asking those questions, 
if scientists want to act like only scientists have a seat at the table and all theologians and Bible students and uh, philosophers, you get away. You have no place in the discussion. No, I don't accept that at all. We have a seat at that table. So science has answers, but it doesn't have every answer. Not at all. So I believe in science. What I don't believe is in what some people have called scientism, thinking that everything can be reduced to science. Everything can be reduced to what you can prove into a laboratory. So Christians, we're pro-science. And my message to scientists is, if you come up with something that you think contradicts what the Bible says, keep digging. You keep digging, and basically, you're going to come to the right answer. I believe at the end of it all, it's going to be seen that there's a perfect correlation between what scientists observe in the world God has actually created and biblical truth. And if there's some kind of discrepancy between that right now, or at least let me say apparent discrepancy, it's because uh, science hasn't finished finding out everything it's going to find out. But people who use science to dismiss Christianity, to dismiss the Bible, come on. We don't need any of that. There's just no purpose for that whatsoever. Um, instead, so often we find that science is a glorious testimony to the power of God. One more thing to say about this, Jane. Um, I really don't have a problem. Now, I know that there's some people who have a great problem with this. People would consider themselves old earth creations. They believe God created the heavens and the earth. He just did it however many billions of years ago that scientists claim it was done. I don't have a problem with the concept that God created a universe with age built into it. Now, again, I want to recognize, I know that that's a huge stumbling block for some people. Personally, I don't find it such a big stumbling block. To me, that doesn't like shock me or upset me, this basic idea that God would create a earth or a universe that has age built into it. Um, Again, I go back to uh, trees in the Garden of Eden. Did they have rings in them? Did they have indications of age, even though they had just been created a few days? It seems like Adam was created as an adult. How old was Adam? Well, he was two days old. No, it looks like he was 25 or 30 years old. So I, I don't have any problem with the idea of creating the universe with age built into it, even though I know that's a huge stumbling block for some believers. So that's some of my thoughts there, Jane. Um, Karen, thank you for listening from Ottawa, Canada. Great to hear that. Um, you're welcome. Um, looking at some of these comments. Let me just go to one thing. Um, hey, David, I have some friends who are Orthodox. They're really fixated on the, trans, on the transubstantiation and say the early church fathers believed that. Could you point me to a good resources for refuting? I have no doubt that the elements do not literally change into literal flesh and blood and believe I can make a logical argument for that, but I'm looking for some early church father commentaries for refuting. Well, I got to say, I, I'm not um, equipped right now to give such an answer to that. I'd have to do some research for that. Um, I do know, just as is being claimed here, that some early church fathers had a very high regard for the bread and the cup of communion. 
and very much believed that we were receiving Christ, whatever that meant to them, when we took the bread and the cup of communion. But I, I just want to get back to this idea, even as we talked about purgatory, there were some early church fathers who believed at least in an elementary concept of purgatory. It doesn't mean they were right. We, we respect and take with interest what the early church thought. We don't arrogantly disregard it, um, but we do not regard it as finely determinative either. Uh, so I'd have to do more research on that to give you a proper answer to that question. All right, let me just come to a few more here. Um, what can you say to a person that is always full of worry because of sin in the sense that it brings depression because they want to do the right thing and are scared that God, God doesn't forgive them? Thanks. Okay, uh, this is to Mictalia um, or Miss Mictalia. I don't know exactly how to say that. Listen, if a person is greatly troubled because they're not sure of the forgiveness of sins, they need to memorize and meditate upon Scripture and embrace and believe the promises of God. First John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the promise of God. And I know what it's like for the mind, for the heart, for the soul to be assaulted again and again by demonic voices that say you're not forgiven. You're too filthy before God. But in the name of Jesus, every demonic voice needs to be silenced and through great confidence in, meditation upon, and memorization of God's promises in the scriptures, that's what that person needs to cling to. And, and stop trying to convince the devil or anybody else that you're not as bad as they say they are. Martin Luther used to say this. Martin Luther used to say, that's who I got right back here, this little Playmobil figure, Martin Luther. Martin Luther used to say that when the devil comes to him and starts telling him what a terrible sinner he is, Martin Luther didn't dispute it. He didn't argue with the devil about it. Martin Luther said, you know what? I am that bad. Matter of fact, there's some sins you've left out, devil. And Martin Luther used to add this. He goes, I know that I'm a great sinner, but I have an even greater savior in Jesus Christ. That's the attitude we need to have, that we are not beyond the saving work and power of Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm going to leave it to here. I see there's a few more questions uh, coming up. Listen, I, I can't do this all day long. Maybe we'll get back to these later on, or you can ask the questions again. But again, I'm so pleased that you could join me for today's question and answer. Thank you to those who are praying. Could I please ask you again, please pray, especially for the new Arabic website that we've launched, a dedicated Arabic website. Right now, we're doing some Facebook ads in Arabic-speaking countries, just trying to let people know about that dedicated Arabic website. Pray that God blesses that and uses it as a resource that can help Arabic believers and seekers. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, God bless you. I'll see you again the next time that we do this. And uh, I'm very grateful for the people who pray for the work of Enduring Word and uh, who support it. So God bless you. Thank you for that. And we'll meet again this next time. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.